Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room, where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. Minnie Driver is a woman of many parts, an Oscar-nominated actress, famous films like Circle of Friends and Goodwill Hunting, numerous TV roles, including Riches and Will and Grace. And she's also a singer with three studio albums, a podcaster, Minnie Questions with Minnie Driver, and an author, Managing Expectations, a memoirish book of stories of her life. She's also a daughter, a sister, a mother, a partner, and a best friend. <laughs> so, so you, welcome, Millie. You are the first guest on my new podcast. And when I was thinking about you, I was thinking that is a lot of identities and, and a lot of roles. Yeah. And you said in your book, your brilliant book, um, Mini Driver Managing Expectations, um, that you're very good at pretending to be people. But this book isn't pretending. It's powerful in its honesty and it's funny and it's raw and hugely touching and emotional. And it's sort of very emotional and open and beautifully written. It's a beautiful book. Oh, thank you. So I hope we'll spend some time talking about that as well as, well, there's a lot of you. I mean, there's all of you in the book, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there is actually. It really, it's undiluted me. Um, I mean, edited somewhat, but but not uh, not censored really. Uh, it was very cathartic. It was very therapeutic writing it, um, and immensely enjoyable. A lot, uh, which ran alongside how incredibly hard it is to write a book. So, I was. It was interesting oscillating between things being very hard and very good, and I realised that is a perfect analogy for my life, and maybe it's everybody's life. Just, but it, it brought it into really bold relief that things really can be two things. It can be very, very hard and it can be very, very wonderful in tandem. That two things could be completely true. But also there were kind of, there was roller coasters, wasn't there? There was yeah. times of sort of peak experiences, which I guess were hard in themselves because they're peak. Because even having a heightened experience isn't always just a good thing but also quite a lot of crashes and burns. And I was wondering, through it all, what do you think is the kind of greatest challenge that you've had to face or, or are facing? I think... So funny, I was talking with my... I, I mean, me. M me. In, me in, in the way of... You know, if, if one thinks about there being 
two me's, there are clearly more than that, but the two me's, the one who is the observer, who can just take the hawk's eye view and can see everything and go, you know this, I, you know this lesson, you've seen this, you've lived this. And then there seems to be the physical me in this reality who sometimes is completely incapable of knowing I see the big hole in front of me. I know that I'm going to fall right in it if I continue. And yet it seems or feels like I'm powerless to do anything except fall in that big hole. And all I've noticed as I've grown older is that it just takes me less time to get out of the hole. And I've got more tools. I've got, you know, I've got some, I've got some carabiners and some pickaxes and some crampons in the bottom of the hole. And now I can get out. But I think that's what's so hard is that I feel like there are certain parts of me that are just, they're apparently like held in amber. They're just, it doesn't look like they're ever really going to evolve. And so this more evolved part of me has to accommodate that and go, okay, then I'm going to be as smart as I can around these difficult parts of me that through trauma or through whatever the reason is, don't look like they're ever going to let go of their hold on things being hard. So that's a long-winded way of going. I am my worst enemy, but I don't like the word enemy. I, I'm just, I get in my way. And it, and it also sounds like you really know yourself so that you have this third eye where you can come from wisdom and knowledge and you have this kind of internal, powerful response that, that, that doesn't really listen to the third eye and kind of thrusts you into environments and places. And in some ways what it makes me think of is that the body remembers, the body holds the score in the sense that it works so much faster than your thinking brain because you said it might be trauma. But also from how you're even speaking, it feels like there's a, I don't know if it's a part or a sort of something in you that kind of wants to go to the edge, that wants to go in the, that gets something from the intensity of it, from the expansion of the experience or somehow chipping of learning to have your tools. Well, I wonder, like, is it, I'm, I'm really interested as to whether that is, you know, how much is learned and how much is just a person's personality and a, and a character, like, you know, there are aspects of my child who is the human that I've watched most closely develop, like forensically. And there are just certain traits that Henry came into this world with that I know he is going to have his whole life. So I don't know if if it was circumstance in me that that got me comfortable with jumping off the cliff and going, this is terrifying and exhilarating. And actually it gives me something, but it's also so awful and brings me so much pain. I don't know if that was learned or if I genuinely came in with that strange kamikaze uh, um, inclination. Um, I, 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 I ponder it, but I also feel like, or I've reached the point of going, well, I don't know if I'm ever going to yet to figure out which one it is. I've just got to deal with that being true, that I'm a rank catastrophizer, but that also I secretly might like it, <laughs> which is awful because everyone else has to put up with it. You know. I mean, it is a, 
it feels like in some ways you're befriending this, which has also really worked for you because it's meant you've gone to places that somebody who didn't go to the edge and fly off, you know, doesn't take risks. It has kind of been in your favour too. And the thing that I was thinking about, is it inherited? Is it, you know, I think it's probably iterative that Mm. we are born with a predisposition and then we grow and develop more aspects of ourselves given our environment. And it was quite interesting. You were talking about being a kamikaze pilot and jumping off the edge. And of course, you know where I'm going. (laughs) Your dad was an RAF pilot in the war. Yeah. And was a kamikaze pilot in a way. Yeah, and he... He risked his life many times a day, I guess. He did. So I've been so... um, I don't know what the word is, but ever since I found out, he... He sh- he was meant to have died on the day that he actually died. He was meant to have died on December 18th, 1939, when he was 18, flying in this first terrifying, deadly air battle of the Second World War, of which he survived and he saved four men and received, like, the highest... Yeah. But, the, you know, ditched in the North Sea in the coldest winter, didn't know... Like, the, 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 the plane, engines had all gone. They were crash landing. He was definitely going to die. And yet he didn't. And he not only didn't die, but he saved these men and then lived with survivor's guilt. But then he actually did die on December the 18th, 2009. Whoa. And I've been been so sort of consumed with that idea that I think it... I think it followed him, in a way, his whole life. That notion of just facing... facing what most of us feel like is unfaceable... And in a way, he took that with him into the whole of his life, whereby any emotional distress that dad experienced caused a much bigger reaction than one might have thought comparable to what was happening. And I never understood it until I did this documentary, Who Do You Think You Are? And I went through his war record with a historian and then with a doctor who explained what PTSD looked like and it was extraordinary and I realised how much he carried and I wonder, I wonder about that, the notion of epigenetics, you know, that which is part, it is passed down. I'm actually only just really realising that as I'm saying it. Like it's, it's very, very similar. I have a very similar reaction to emotion that my dad had. And, and epigenetics is passed down in two ways. It's passed down in your genes, that your genes in response to an external threat are wired to be more sensitive and take you to fight, flight or freeze faster. Mm. So switches off your thinking mm. faster, which is, describes what you said at the beginning. But also we learn how to deal with difficulty by observing our parents. And your dad, I mean, that episode of him posting you on a plane to Miami because he couldn't withstand your conflict. Yeah. It is, that is like blowing himself up if you know what I mean and it feels like that that because he saved four lives and yet he had survivor's guilt so I'm not quite sure about that but also from what I've understood from your mum who is this amazing woman she was quite dramatic you witnessed dramas all of the time yeah I mean absolutely and what so what I what's interesting and from an adult's point of view, is realising as a child you just, you do not see them as anything other than godheads. 
your parents. You don't see them as human beings. You can't, there's no context. There just is this, it's like it's empirical, the way that they behave. That is your, that is your ideology. That is your identity. It's your map. It is. It's all you know. It's 100%. And you got, you know, you're so, one is so lucky if you find ways to to be able to see that. I think that's what means that you can actually have a relationship with your parents later on in life once you've come to realise that they are human beings who are having their own human experience, dealing with all of their trauma, whilst also being able to accommodate, it was still very hard for me as a child and hold those two things to be true, that they were still dealing with their the, the children that they were. But at the time, it's, it's, uh, it's much more precarious and certainly much more emotionally damaging. But, you know, I feel like I know that my mum and dad emotionally damaged too you know it's that philip larkin poem they fuck you up your mom and dad they may not mean to but they do like they we all we all do that and it's really just the measure of i think how much you can you can make your peace with that as you as i grew older and 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 it feels like certainly with your mum i mean you don't talk that much about your dad Mm. although he sounds like a hell of a character yeah he was you know when your mum talked about being a shit mother you were clear to her that that you really loved her. But I guess the difference in how we, you know, we we are frail and and faulty and, you know, we make our own mistakes. But the difference between you and your parents is that you now have a language to name what's going on inside you, mm. to describe some of that geography. And, and it, they had no idea. Like they were mm. kind of pretending every day <laughs> to be grown up and every day being kind of thrown into this terrifying kind of place by external events or that intern- how the external events triggered their internal traumas. I mean, what do you think, Julia, with with the, the sort of the strange purgatory? Because I noticed it in my mother and I feel it myself. When you have done some work and read books and pursued retreats and gone inward and examined and you're aware of these of these pitfalls whether in your own character of just or just being a human being wandering around this planet so having this awareness but then also feeling powerless to actually to do something about it like it's you know my I don't think my father followed the same self-inquiry that my mother did but I don't know that he was any happier and I'm because I wonder what what is the what is the piece between seeing the choices that you make that are based on whatever they're based on, making your peace with that, and then actively adjusting what whatever needs to be adjusted to have a different experience. What what is that piece that needs to happen? Well, I think you're doing it, and part of it was in writing the book and finding a language. And I've heard you talk to Henry that the way you talk to Henry is that you have an emotional language together Mm. and he can say it back to you. So, I mean, if your question is, can we fix our early traumas Mm. and so that we live in a kind of more balanced way, I think we will always get thrown to the wounds. But I don't think the wound, I don't think we can remove the wounds that happen to us. And I think our default will always go there. But I think in having your tools, you know, and yours is 
kind of being able to name what's going on and having a narrative. The story you tell yourself is the person you become. Mm. And I could feel it as you were writing your book that you have, you can make sense of yourself through yourself and the story you're telling yourself is changing. And also, I think in the book, I felt that you were recognising you had this incredible power, you know, that didn't get destroyed by being ticked off by your dad or moved around a lot and living a slightly kind of precarious life with your, full of love, but precarious with your mum. Yeah. But that this, your innate self has really worked for you as well. And that the, you know, people talk about post-traumatic growth, hmm. that those that have had many traumas like you've had, you know, traumas with a little T, hmm. if you find a way of living with them and you recognise you survive them, it doesn't mean that they haven't been difficult or you don't recognise the pain of them. But in recognising that you have survived them, that feels like growth hmm. and that you feel stronger than you thought you were. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that is exactly that's exactly it it's so interesting the idea of i wonder why we do that of the thought that we could somehow remove the wound and i know it it, it seems so clear when you when you say it like that but i feel like we're all skewed towards this idea of 100% like the idea that we could remove that thing as opposed to that wound is that wound and what what grows is is us and our relationship with it Completely. and getting sucked back into it is 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 pretty is actually just pretty typical to go yeah this is where you're going to go to but then also okay well I'm going to have this arsenal of of tools with which to to deal with it when I rec- when I find myself in this you know recognizable landscape and that that thread runs through almost everything you say that I get thrown off I feel out of control. I'm terrified. I go to raves in order to stabilize. <laughs> go to America. Yeah. I do dangerous things. I go and try and rescue my house with a complete stranger. And I survive. And sometimes I thrive. And I have moments mm. of enormous joy and love. And that you hold those things, moving between them, having more, feels like more stability in how to stabilize yourself hmm. if that makes sense yeah than you did because before you you just were thrown yeah it was scattered it was scattering seeds and then living out the reality of whatever they say in the bible you know some fall on stony ground some fall on fertile ground but but living each experience um uh which is exhausting it re- i mean it really is exhausting but you know, funny and interesting, I suppose, to have found a profession where you can profit off that. You can actually make money out of being able to feel a series of emotions, huge emotions, very quickly, translate those, express them, articulate them, make people feel things that they don't want to have to actually feel. So you're this, you, you know, you become this, this, this proxy but what is interesting, what is weird as an actress that you can sort of become a proxy to your own life and eventually you do have to pay that bar tab. It, 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 if you, I think if you're lucky, you know. So, just, so one of my questions is what do you think it was about the experience that was particularly challenging for you, of you being in relation to you? And is this the answer that 
that you learned to be these different identities in these roles, but you hadn't found an integrated way of being yourself. Is that the bar term? Yeah. What, I, I think, what, what was so challenging about it? I think that you, so if you have the baseline of uh, insecurities and things that, you know, I write about it a bit in the book of always feeling like, you know, the found traveller child to my mother and my sister's cool, blonde, leggy cabal. And then, so my identity was already fractured and, and, and insecure. You then become an actor where you're playing all these different parts. So you're being given the opportunity to constantly explore people other than yourself. Um, which in, in a profession, in a, by a, the way, that yeah. is... Is you have to you said you have to win the lottery each bloody yeah, and time. So you so you've, you have to get the role. Yeah, and you're and you're dealing with constant rejection. So it's like, so the real me, the me that goes into audition, she constantly gets rejected. So when you get a role, that is acceptance. So that role then becomes your everything, and that person that you're playing is your way out of all of the other shit, and it means you don't have to deal with that shit for a while. So it's a brilliant escape. So then only working, which is what I did for a really long time. I, my sweet friendships fell by the wayside. My family was really the only constant thing, but I was just a work machine because just lily padding from job to job to job offered this way of continuing to explore identity and people whilst never really having to deal with myself. But in very, you know, it obviously catches up with you and it would come out in my relationships with men. Like that's, so you'd think, oh, well, you know, the best thing that I could do to give myself a life outside of working is to have a relationship because everybody's supposed to get married, even though my parents never did. Um, Everybody's supposed to be loved. And if you're loved and if someone gives you that label, then again, I'm not going to have to go and excavate all of that painful stuff. So it was really, uh, but which is a bit like very sweetly bashing your head against the wall, you know, and it's like the universe or God or whatever you want to call it will just sort of let you do that or the circumstances of just being alive. Like you, you can go and explore all those things, but then there is a moment at which you just sit sort of bloodied and bruised and go, why am I continuing to do this thing? And again, if you're lucky, you get to have that reckoning of, I have absolutely no idea what to do. I don't want to continue in that direction. I'm scared of looking back at that. What do I do? And you're, you're ultimately faced with yourself. And again, I think if you're lucky, you find your way through that and you come out the other side. But I do understand why a lot of people turn to drugs and alcohol. I understand why people have multiple relationships where they get married hundreds of times like I, I completely understand the the wanting to stay distracted from one of the central tenets of being a human being which is you're gonna have to face yourself you're gonna you're gonna have to you know that's such a beautiful way of describing it and what I kind of was thinking about as you were talking is that you recognize like all of us use busyness as a self-medication, to not face ourselves and look at ourselves. And with you, it's for a huge span of time and that you formed relationships within those times, which were never real relationships in a way, because they were when you had taken on a role. 
And it wasn't until you had a reckoning that you were forced to look at Minnie internally. And kind of my understanding is that pain is the agent of change. The things that we do to block the pain is over time the thing that does us harm. Because we don't have the opportunities to work out what we're blocking. That's exactly right. But we but we want to avoid pain and we're taught to avoid pain at all cost, at all cost. Pain is not presented as this extraordinary teacher. It's it's really interesting. Like we'll do anything to avoid it. Telly, booze, weed, culture, the shopping, the internet, that any, anything, anything to not actually just stop and I wonder and I think maybe that's like the acting thing. What I love about it so much is that there's this this really uh this exploration of art that exists so you can dive into that pain while and it's being underwritten as art but you can but it's like until you recognize that it's the exploration of pain and not just the presentation you know a performance. of a beautiful film or a performance and it isn't just, exactly it isn't purely performative then i think when i realized that things became way more interesting. I'm not saying that they necessarily became easy, but they certainly became more enjoyable to go, this is both things. Yeah. It isn't easier, it's, no. but it's, it's real. You feel alive. I yeah. mean, it felt as much as you were suffering in this high kind of octane state, you know, that time you wake up in Radstock, and Radstock's about two miles from here. I know Radstock. I know that I know that <laughs> chemist. I had my COVID vaccine at that chemist. Oh no way. That's so funny. <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, like these these huge moments. But you were at a as far as I could make out, that was that reckoning you'd had yeah. amazing highs, car crash, amazing highs, car crash. You know, at the end of lots of highs, lots of car crashes, the women in your life, your mother, your sister, um, people picked you up. And that, I think, probably, as you said, enabled you to survive. That was the thing that helped you was the women in your life. But at the lowest point, then this miracle happened. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, really genuinely waking up on January 1st and going this I can't, I can't, like, I can't, I can't bear it. I can't bear another year of doing this thing. So you've come to a complete collapse stop in a bathtub on January 1st. And people say, or maybe it's therapists or people, a breakdown is a breakthrough. So at that moment, you thought, I can't do this. And so something had shifted already. Yes, Something that's that it, that's exactly right. Something had shifted, and I didn't know I was pregnant. So, it had already. But it it was so interesting to like have that moment when the the next chapter was already being written. Like what's so beautiful and what we forget when we're in agony is that there is another story that is it is it is a filament away from us. It was a membrane away from me. It's always right there. Like that runs the the good story, the opposite story, the story that leads you out of the one that is most painful is always right there. And we 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 don't remember that. If we're lucky, maybe we have someone going, I need to remind you of the other story that is happening right alongside this current one. It's right there. 
And I don't know exactly what you have to do to get into that story, but I want you to remember that it's there so that you don't feel so isolated in your pain. Like, go through it, What you know, keep going. When, in, when, when, when you're going through hell, keep going. It is that thing, isn't it? It's so impossible. Like, if you're in the weather, if you can imagine that feelings are like weather, when you're in the <laughs> eye of the sort of snowstorm and the hail is in your face and you haven't got enough clothes on and your feet are cold, you never, ever believe it's going to be spring again or that you're going to have warm feet. And if only we had, because when you're in it, of course, your thinking and your memory are switched off because you're in a heightened state. So you're only in fight or flight or freeze. So you have no capacity to recall on your wisdom, your knowledge, your connections, Mm. your love, because that is all switched off. Memory is switched off. You're just there to survive. And of course, survive is no place to really live and be in. We need to feel safe to feel warm and loving and connected and creative. And if only we could just kind of tap something on our, on our heads and go, remember, remember. Now a word from our sponsor, Better Help. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions. But when faced with some of life's biggest challenges, it certainly can be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you find the answers that work best for you. And trust me, my clients say there's no better feeling than when you learn how to find your own solutions. While we might not be able to change what has happened to us, in therapy we can change how we feel and act towards what has happened to us. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, better help is a great option. It's not only convenient and can be done from the comfort of your own home, it's also affordable. All you have to do is fill out a quick survey and you'll be matched with a therapist. When you want to be a better problem solver, Therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash therapyworks today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. Chino, I did this thing in when we 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 sort of we accidentally moved to England during COVID because my son wanted to go to school and the schools had stayed shut in Los Angeles through the whole of 2020. They never opened. So we came to do a term in England, which then turned into, can I finish out the year here? During that time, my mother died and everything just felt very, very dark. And I remember being in, um, in Hyde Park. I, I looked at this tree and I realized that I'd taken a picture of it the previous summer when we'd arrived And I had this picture and I was standing in front of this tree feeling like I was going to die because I couldn't bear the sadness of my mother. It was the winter in England. I was so far away from California and my home and my books and my bed and everything that I'd known in 26 years. And I looked at this tree and I just got the picture out on my phone (laughs) of the tree in the summer. And I was like, okay, it can look like that. It currently looks like this. (laughs) It's your touchstone. (laughs) Yeah, 
and I, it's actually a really, it's actually quite a good thing. It's how I've managed to to suffer through the British winters, which I do think can be analogous for anything hard in your life, because there's not much harder than this cold, grey, freezing, wet, direly dark time. Um, and I looked at this thing, it will change. It's not going to change today. It's not going to change today, but perhaps adding in the idea that there is an evolution to this moment will make it more bearable. And I do believe it did. It doesn't fix it. It doesn't, the idea of getting to joy from that moment is I think where we we get a bit lost thinking, I've got to feel better. If you can just feel fractionally better, that admits the idea that it can change and it will change. It's just you have to have a bit of patience. And it's almost like if you can have that tiny, tiny light that can give you a tiny hope, you know, that image of a spring tree. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to know it's going to happen, but you can just have that kind of image. Something shifts in that moment. That This isn't yep. all, although it's yes. really terrible now. And knowing that enables you to kind of sustain or survive. Yeah. This it's not the whole incredible story. pain. It's not the whole story. This isn't this isn't the end. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's funny, there's quite a lot of punishing that goes on, I've realized, in like in the wake of grief. Like I would get I would get so frustrated when I would have days where I didn't feel like I'd enjoyed anything because my my punishing thought would be you're literally going to be dead so so soon and you just wasted another day being sad and feeling awful and it's it was so <laughs> i did actually sit down and deal with that one because it was so brutal but it's and then turned that idea of mortality into more of an engine rather than a punishment but there was that is the strangest thing when that i had never really been aware of when mum died and that bulwark, I mean, I talked about it a bit in the book, but I didn't realise that that was going to happen. This bulwark between me and my own mortality was going to be removed. And suddenly this terrifying rush of fear that I was next was then going to be looming. And part of this, the more active part of my own like grieving process has been turning that thought of it being this terrifying Thing into I'm going to use that as an engine to my and even if my day is that the best thing that happens in my day not even but if the best thing that happens in my day is me walking on the beach just going for a walk then I'm going to consciously make that my beautiful and this is how I lived moment of my day if it's making myself scrambled eggs on toast it doesn't it's not like every day has to have a three ring circus in it but somehow that changing the mindset of I wasted something to I was aware of it. And I made, by making it conscious, I made it valuable and valid. Um, but I had to experience a lot of feeling like my life was completely meaningless in order to get to that. And in some way, you know, that is what you kind of learn from it and it feels like what you learn from it, that by going into it, not avoiding it, doing lots of roles, by allowing yourself 
to feel the awfulness of that pain. Of the, and the thing about grief, people so often turn against themselves and attack themselves. It's yeah. a cruel nature of grief that somehow yeah. you're doing it wrong or, and we're not compassionate with ourselves. Like, oh, I really miss my mum. I love yeah. my mum. And I, yeah. my hurt and pain is equal to my love. And that is a huge, that is a massive great hole in me that is a mum-shaped hole that I'm missing. But it feels like because you, or yes, because you stayed with it, you allowed yourself to go into it. And that freed you in some ways to move between the kind of loss orientation where you felt the pain to the restorative orientation, which is this movement in grief is between loss and Mm. restoration, where you could say, you could paradoxically say, with that bullet missing, I'm going to make damn sure I'm living my life to the full and that means I can just feel the sand on my feet on the beach or swimming I don't have to win an Oscar every day but I'm really going to embrace each day because mortality means more to you now because you really know what death feels and looks like death isn't this funny thing that happens to other people I'd never I genuinely and even through the loss of my father I was thinking that I would say I didn't it didn't hit me in the same way and maybe it's because when you have you still have, have one, one parent, parent who is who is between you and that thing. But so it's really the death of the second parent, whether that's your mother or your father, that precipitates that feeling of free fall towards something that you want protection from, but that protection has been removed. And it's it's very frightening. I didn't and I also it's like you feel guilty going the Grief feels like fear, doesn't it? It does really feel grief, like grief it does, because I I'd never heard anyone talk about that specific thing and I started asking my friends and I was like do you do you feel so frightened by the idea of your own death now like are you, that you'd never thought about it before and to a person they said yes and it's not I you know I mean those of us weirdos who are in the death community we know it but in the <laughs> in the general population the ignorance about death and grief and what it's like and, and what's normal. You feel like you're going mad and you're terrified. You know, you feel your mortality and you, you feel like death is entering into you in some ways, yes. don't you, viscerally? Yeah. That is not out in the world. And so every time someone is bereaved, which everybody will be, yeah, it's like they have they don't have a map. It's like being you when you were eight years old being sent to Miami. They have no map or landscape of like, oh, you feel frightened. Oh, you feel like you're going to die. Oh, it feels like you're going mad. Oh, it means you don't sleep or eat or you do all of those things in reverse. It's just not out there. But you, you, I think your book helped get it out there. Well, that's good to hear. I was quite interested at the end of your book, um, which I imagine was written very soon after your mum died. And you said... I won't say goodbye. And you also didn't actually say she died. Yeah. It was at that, it's really interesting because the, so the the last chapter of my book is basically the day, because she died from, from, from the point at which there was even vaguely something wrong to the point of her dying was 14 days. Crazy. And I wrote it in, in, in the form of like a, of a diary in a way because I remember 
etched into me and part of my grieving process, and I didn't know if it was going to make it into the book, was I had to write down almost so I could I could read it to know that it happened. This is what happened. I was in Waitrose when I got the call that something was very, very wrong. I, and I, so going through it, her last night, which was on a Saturday, mm-hmm. and, and when I came to thinking, like, I know exactly what happened on that Sunday. I know as forensically as I knew what happened on every other day. I know exactly how that went down to, the, to, to her last breath, to my first one in the world without her. But it was, it was like I'd reached the edge of what I wanted to share or was yeah. able to share, I think, publicly. So It's a very intimate moment, isn't it? Intimate death. It, it is. It's like, it's like birth. I mean, it is birth. It is. It is, it is birth. It was the same experience, so strangely, the same experience of this complete miracle of how was this person born? How did I make this? I am watching this person come out of me. I made a person in my body. How is this possible? It was as miraculous and extraordinary to go, where is this beautiful person going? This person Mm -hmm. who made me, where are they exiting to? In the same way that I watched my son's entrance. And maybe exits and entrances are also very thematic in my life as an actor but but the mir- the miracle of it and the sort of that we don't know and yet in surrendering to not knowing frees us to embrace it and allow that birth that death can f- is a kind of birth and it's you learning to be a completely new version of yourself you without a living mum yeah and that having henry is a new version of yourself learning to be a mum to be a per- yeah, a- absolutely. It is the it's the mirror. It's the mirror image. You know, it's the it's that wild bookend. You know, that's why the alpha and omega is always life and death. Um, but we are very. I'm. I'm. It, I think it dovetails. It's funny going back to something that you said about the avoidance thing. I think it's about in the same way that we avoid pain. Like pain is also so fear is is part of pain and we fear death like people fear death which is why they don't want to examine the idea of their mortality it's like no thanks that is not something I want to look at because I will it's too frightening and it's it's funny it's like people want to feel that's why they go to the movies it's why I have a job they want they people love going to horror films they want it to be they want it to be external. They want to be able to have, in a way, you can have control over it if you're in a movie theater, if you're watching television and it's some, happening to someone else. You can observe it and somehow experience it without actually having to experience it. That's when I start understanding whatever books I've read about, like the kind of shamanistic act, um, aspect of acting, where you really, it's someone is doing it for you in order for you to be able to experience it and survive it. But, like, what does that mean for the actor? You tell me. Well, exactly. I mean, that's why it's, like, it's become, it's become really, you know, mum dying really, like, helped me examine what that is. I mean, I started doing it in the book. That's why it's so interesting that she died in the middle of it. 
and she really it really was another extraordinary gift that she gave me was being able to it's like okay no you've you've started you've started to pull the thread on this sweater but you're not actually getting really you're in here you can get really 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 deeply into it with this and you know it was it was a huge gift it was hugely healing hugely healing for me like I wish I could have shared a more of that healing with my sister and my brother. I really do. Um, it's very hard watching your siblings go through grief as well. Yeah. Well, it, it, emotions are contagious, which is why they kind of transmit across the screen, but also with each other. And when you know each other, you read it and feel it. And what I was aware of was when you were talking is in that, you know, your relationship with your mum in recognising she's died, it's also an ongoing relationship. Like she's part of you, the love for her never dies. She influences you as a mum. And I, if I, I'm right, what I get from what you're saying is that she's also influencing you from beyond the grave about how you act, how you become who you are now that you've had this kind of reworking through grief. Yeah, I mean, that's the... I mean, who knows what will happen with it, but the, the, net, the book that I want to write or that I've started, Great. you know, sketching out is is that, that, you know, the one-liner would be no one talks about the relationship that begins with the person you love after they're dead. And the exploration of that and all of these things which, you know, it just takes reading one letter in their personal effects to have her to blow your mind and yet to, because they're right there but also what's being revealed there is absolutely no way of ever having a further conversation you know actively to go what does this mean you have to you have to find your own relationship with a you know you have to find resolve and it's weird because it 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 feels like it would be one hand clapping because you're here and they're not <clears throat> but the strange thing is, they are there. She is there. There, there is. It's just a different frequency, and it's 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 just it's a really it's kind of an interesting. I'm very interested in exploring that um, that idea because I don't I can't be the only person who feels that. <laughs> no. I mean, I can yeah. see it in your face. The depth of what you were feeling is this. Yeah. Like this is new territory internally. And so it feels quite tender in a way, like you want to be tender towards it in finding your new relationship with your mum, which is co-created. She is part of you. It's not just you on your own making it up. It's that she is viscerally, genetically, memory, and and in every way part of you. And it's how mm. you find ways of her living in you and having touchstones to her memory, whether it's a letter or her ring or a photograph or a smell as you walk along the beach, that you mm. find a new way of incorporating her into your life. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the, the, the hard things about your parent don't, you know, there's this deification that happens right when they die where they are just this perfect being. But then... What's, what I what I think is funny and hilarious and great and difficult is also that 
the hard things about them don't stop being hard. Your And your relationship to those hard things about your dead loved one don't stop being hard. You have to keep, like, it, you know, that that that's interesting territory. And like you said, it's, it is, it's tender, but it's also really funny, which is my, you know, that's my favourite confluence. Yeah. Like, tenderness, humour, drama, like... And all funny those things and fun, like really funny, you know, and quite like dark humor. Definitely, like it's really, it really, you know, I, it really did precipitate. It was precipitated by reading a letter that just blew my mind. That this thing, that my mother had done this thing that I didn't know about, and I, the fact that I couldn't ask her about it is just, it was so astonishingly hard and to begin with, and I was so enraged. And it's become funnier and funnier, which then you go, okay, well now I've managed, that's, that's really, that's, that's gone through the correct filters. Now I could actually write about that and be really angry and it also be really funny. So um, you process, in, in our lingo, yeah, you process it. it. And that your relationship with her is built if someone sends you a picture of her that you haven't seen or when you hear yeah. a new story, a new letter. So it grows and evolves your relationship. And wanting to talk about her. So often people don't talk about the people that have died because no one bloody listens. I know. But I uh, love it. Yeah. It's the best thing. It's the best thing ever when someone comes up and goes, um, gosh, I met your ma in, in 1972 in Deauville. I've got to tell you the story. And then they tell you the story that you've never heard. And it is like they've you've been back. given another piece of her. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's an um, amazing I, thing. People are scared that you'll burst into tears. I think that's why they don't. Or and you might. I think, and you, and that's the thing. Like you might, but that's nobody thinks that's okay. Except, I they're think, not going to die. It's not. I think people think death is contagious. That if you talk about it, somehow they're going to catch it. Well, I found that with like my, like, I, f- I felt incredibly resentful for quite a while for my of my friends who whose parents weren't dead, <laughs> whose yeah. parents were alive, and then felt really guilty about seeing that. I felt like they couldn't understand, they couldn't possibly know, and also that they were scared. I could see it in some of my friends' faces when I talk about mum dying, like this, the absolute horror, because it meant they had to think about their own parent dying. Mm. And... You were I, the walking dead parent. You were the, you were the person who reminded them that it was going to happen to them. And there have been people who have literally really good friends of mine who have absolutely not been able to, will not talk about it, will not bring it up. The cursory, how are you doing? is like, yeah, I can see it in their eyes. Please don't actually tell me. <laughs> Please, I'm yeah. begging you. Don't tell me how you're really don't feeling. Tell Just me say how you're really. fine. How, how are you? <laughs> but yeah. also that jealousy of people who had parents for longer or looking at happy yes. Instagram Christmas photos or Thanksgiving or New Year, all of that is painful. I know. I was with I was with a friend yesterday who's um you know in their in their late sixties and was saying, you know, I'm really starting to have to deal with it with my mom. And there was immediate a part of me that was like You've had her so long. You had her so much longer. I'm not feeling bad for any of you. She's 98. (laughs) Like, you've had her, like, fucking hell. Get over it. And it's awful like that. But, you know, I've really realised how incredibly ungenerous that is. And, of course, like... It's nothing about their mum. It's about you missing your mum. Yeah, it is. It's that. Which is why, you know, you don't vocalise it. You don't go, just... 
put a sock in it about <laughs> your mum who you, who's 90. You know, you don't say that. But it was, it, it was interesting. It's I on know, the tip. I really, I noticed it. But I knew, like, you know, thank God, like, you know, don't, do not say that. You don't have to say that. And also, it's okay that you feel that. You just miss, I miss Gaynor. I miss mum. Yeah. yeah. So we're coming to the end. Do you have yes. a question for me at all? Well, you've answered so many of my questions. Yeah, no, I mean, just talking about all of this has helped so much because it's really, uh, it's so interesting. It's so isolating grief. You just... So lonely and chilly. You can't think anyone. It's so... It really is, even though you know, it, it happens to literally everybody and yet you feel so alone in it because I think we don't have language. We don't have this way of talking about it um because you're right people think it's contagious or maybe it is contagious and it's a kind of magical thinking like you said that if I don't think about it or talk about it then it's Mm. not going to happen to me or my mum yep so I'll just turn away exactly which is a loss because then they don't you know the thing you've got from your mum I don't know that you could have had it before is that you've changed your relationship with living Death has taught you something different about living. Yeah, it really has. That's a biggie. Yeah, it's huge. There are times that I do wish I could kind of go back to the... I mean, I know it sounds weird, but even like mummy mummy being here aside, which is obviously what I want, is going back to this time when I didn't think about death as much, where I didn't think this is actually going to end. I'll be separated from my son. I won't see the sunrise. I won't be able to surf. It's, there are times when I, and I, but I think I am in process of, I'm I'm still grieving hugely. It's been like yeah, a yeah. year. It's just a different. It's early days. It's a different stage. Yeah. So I'm hoping to kind of come to peace with that and not feel, um, and not feel like the, the meter is running all the time and that I wish I could get back to a, a time when I wasn't even thinking about it. But I, I do, I look forward to that. I look forward to it evolving further. And it will do. I mean, because you're you're kind of letting it do its business with you. You're letting it shape you and change you and it adjusts you. One mm. of the things I was wondering, and I, I know we've got to stop, but I want to carry on forever, is um, <laughs> do you ever write her postcards? Oh, gosh. No, I have not done that. I haven't done that. Oh, God, what would I say? That's a really... Do, do, do you... What is that? Um, what does that do for people? Like, what has that traditionally done for people that you've recommended do that? I mean, there's lots of it's making what's invisible tangible, and also it gives you uh, because grief, as you say, is so lonely. But it's also completely invisible. You're walking down the street, yeah, because you're not a Victorian wearing black. Well, clothes wearing or... black. That's I understand now why people <laughs> did that. I under, I so get, get it, it now why they. <laughs> Hundred percent. It was nothing to do with like black. I'm like the the, the death. It was like letting you know I am not the same. I'm I raw. am not. I am be nice to me. <laughs> yes, the same way that people stand up when you're pregnant on the on the tube, yeah. they can actually see that you might need to sit down. But, but but a lot of my clients wear black. By the way, I wish I wish now that I had done it. It's so strange. I wish that I'd done it as I'm not someone who wears black at all, ever, People would have recognised really. it as a signal. Yeah. I really understand. You know what? It's, that's, such a, that's also such a great piece of advice to give someone, like, to, you know, 
ones looking for practical things to help people beyond provide food, walk the dog, do the laundry, which is really useful it when someone's really died. That's what you really want. But someone saying, I give you permission to wear black all of the time and let me know, let I will tell you that it will act like a beacon above you to alert others to your changed state. Yeah, completely. You know. And love. I mean, it felt to me that it was the love of others that enabled you to survive. The love of Addison, Henry, Katie, your brother. And loving them, you know, loving Ed. And And loving them, it's reciprocal. Loving Ed and Kate through the moments where they, and and brilliantly, when when I fall apart and I call my sister, she is strong. And when she falls apart, she calls me. And we do for each other what our mother did for both of us. That is amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. That's what your mum gave you. Yeah, she did. She gave us, she really did. She really, really did. She was a very, very good friend. She was, she found her way to being a great mother, but she was always a great friend. Amazing. Thank you so much, Minnie. Thank you, Julia. This is the moment in the podcast where you now get three therapists for the price of one. Each week, I'll be joined by my two psychotherapist daughters who will share their own takeaways from the therapy session. Seeing as it's the first episode of the series, I thought I'd let them introduce themselves. I'm Emily Samuel. I am the older sister um, and I am also a child psychotherapist um, who have I've been practicing since ooh, I qualified in like 2013. And I am... Um... The other daughter, Sophie, <laughs> younger, <laughs> uh, and I'm an adult psychotherapist, and I guess I've been qualified for the last six years, and here we are. What do you think we're doing by doing this bit together? Well, firstly, I think it's a really fun thing for us three together, because um, weirdly, even though we're all therapists, we don't actually really talk together about therapy that much we usually talk about our children and our lives and da, 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 da. um so I mean partly it's just a selfish opportunity for us I think um but sort of obviously bigger and more importantly I think in discussing these really amazing interviews that you're doing mum um I'm hoping that we can kind of expand the conversation um and also because Soph and I have different trainings to you and do slightly different things kind of add like a different lens and some different insight into some of the themes that are brought up in all these different interviews that you're doing and kind of just make therapy talk a little bit more accessible which I think is a really really needed thing especially right now when I think a lot of people out there are really struggling with mental health and maybe don't have access or don't even necessarily need therapy but would like to have new ways of thinking about themselves and how they came to be who they are. I really like that. And I agree. And I think one of the things when we did talk about it together was we wanted to kind of lower the barrier to understanding the learning from therapy mm. and that even having difficult conversations don't have to be devastating and dark. Mm. They can be actually sometimes quite light and funny. Yeah, I, I would agree with all of that, Em. I think it's also something about... Um humanizing it isn't it I think one of the things about being both therapist and family 
is the hope that I think sometimes therapy is sort of in a box, isn't it? Or in a corner and it's not something you do if things aren't okay is often still a thing in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And that actually we're just ordinary people (laughs) Um, who are as complex. And it sort of, I think it sort of takes it out of this special kind of special place, maybe just being us, being both people and therapists at the same time and sisters and mothers and daughters and interested in therapy together. Also, I know that when I listen to podcasts, particularly if they're in things that I'm interested in, in stories, then I'm having a conversation in my head about what it means in my life. And it's like a dialogue. And in a way, my hope is it's a bit like you can, listeners can join in our dialogue in their head. We're sort of an extension of the interview of like what's brought up for us and our thoughts and what might be brought up for the listener. And Yeah, or just really disagreeing with us. And I think you'll be thinking that about me too. So, shall we start with discussing my conversation with Minnie Driver? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's like a a great opener because I think actually listening to you talk with Minnie Driver, the way that you started the conversation was really about her identities and the multiple identities she has. And I think for us, one of the things that makes it a bit nerve wracking is that like we're smushing all these different identities that all three of us have together. So we all operate all the time with different identities that we are kind of going back and forth with in everyday life. And I think that was kind of how you beautifully started the conversation with Minnie. What do you think? I just agree with all that. It's a creative unknown, isn't it? This coming together and discovering what this podcast mixed identity is yeah I mean I think one of the things is about our professional identities which I'm really interested in and mm-hmm. because as mother daughter adult daughters we have renegotiated our relationship yeah but I think as professionals we're really equals and so that's really interesting and I guess can also be challenging yes e- uh, not equals in experience but but that don't think that doesn't mean that we don't all have something to offer yeah I mean I think you have some more experience than Sophie and I just in terms of years yeah (laughs) put in the miles (laughs) (laughs) um and and I think also because we're all therapists we've all kind of done our own therapy and therefore have had our own experience of growth and I really felt listening to Minnie that was something that she has done so much on and This idea that, you know, what we see as our vulnerability or our weakness is can also be our kind of greatest strength. And, you know, when she's sort of talking about like the biggest challenge she faces is me, me. I like I really related to that. (laughs) The idea that, yeah, of course, life throws us all these like additional curveballs and things that happen that are out of our control, but also the way that we operate can really get in our way and yet the exact things that get in our way are often the things that make us really good at other things so like for me for example I'm quite like a sensitive person and that brings with it a lot of challenges because I feel really strongly in response to stuff but it's also what makes me empathic and good at my job and I think that was sort of a theme for me that she really articulated you know the two of you discussed really beautifully this idea that what makes our life difficult can also create beauty and meaning in life 
And the thing I got from that was also that two things are true, you know, which is yeah. in a way what you're saying. It's dialectic. dialectic. Yeah. yeah. And also that in that way, that the sort of patterns of ourselves that she that she talked about, you know, at the very beginning, she talked about falling in the hole and then she's, the hole is there, but she's just quicker at getting out of the hole, you know, yeah. and, that, and the conversation came around to that at the end as well, this idea of kind of post-traumatic growth and that the, those difficult parts of ourselves, you know, I always think of it as like, I can't take away anything that's a part of me, I can add, mm. but that add changes the shape of the whole and that part is different because it's got all these other bits added to it. And so I really related to that sense of I think I find I when I face something difficult, I tend to go through the same emotional patterns and I'm just better equipped at navigating those parts of myself in the moment mm. or better at noticing, quicker at noticing when they're playing out or when yeah. I need to ask for help. And I think that's so helpful, though, because because I think for anybody, when you have that self-awareness, you also have the awareness that there is the other side of it. So you know that you can kind of get through it, that this isn't going to last forever. Like that beautiful image of the tree that she had where she went and it was like she went in winter and it was the sort of metaphor for her life. And then she had a photo on her phone of the, of the spring. I mean, I just that thought that was such a, a beautiful metaphor for how we can like hold hope in mind and how often as therapists actually that is our job is to hold the hope sometimes we have people come to us and really they don't feel any hope at all and part of our job is to kind of hold the hope so that at some point hopefully they can hopefully they can see the hope see, see the hope too mm. yeah and I, and I was thinking about that I really was moved by that image and that sense of when you're in the darkest moment, feeling like, I don't know when this is going to end and I don't know if I can cope. I know I've had those thoughts and feelings of like, I don't know if I can keep going. Mm. I don't know if I can cope if it if it keeps going. This Is it ever going to end? And that somehow having that shaft of light or that, that touchstone of the image or the knowledge that you've been there before <laughs> and you did come <laughs> out last yeah. time, so the chances are you're going to come out again this time. Mm. Um, is really helpful and that one of the things I was thinking was that when something really um, disruptive uh, or traumatic happens it's one of the things that that disrupts both your story about yourself but also your story about the world and it feels more uncertain about how those moments are going to go you know mm. and you have to re reform a story that fits in that into your reality again that there is a bereavement in your life. And then suddenly you have to adjust to this reality that maybe you haven't before, that people die and that life is uncertain. And that, and how do I hold both? How do I hold the fact that people die and life is uncertain and know that good things happen and there's hope and there is, and we're not completely powerless? And the thing that I felt we got to in the end, which links... I think, to what you're both saying, which I really agree with, is that therapy isn't about fixing what's gone wrong and kind of removing the wound, but it's how you come to terms with what's gone wrong, whether it's someone dying like her mum or something bad happening to you, losing your job, and that you, as you're saying, Sophie M, it's reintegrating who you are through the pain of that that allows you to find a way of living and loving again. And mm. where she got to about 
kind of reintegrating her relationship with her mother, which there's a whole theory about that called Continuing Bonds was by Silverman, about the relationship and the love never dies, but it continues. And that she was, what you're talking about, M, the hope that she had this new hope that her relationship with her mother was continuing, which is very touching. And she got it with knowing no theories, just instinctively. Mm. To expand what she talked about for other people is what I meant, Mm. is that when we allow ourselves to Mm. feel the pain, it does then free us to change our relationship with the person that's died. Mm -hmm. The only other thing that sort of you did touch on that, that just really stood out for me was this idea of dialectics, this idea that two opposite things can be true at the same time. And I think the other main thing that she touched on that I think that I definitely relate to, I'm sure a lot of people relate to, and sort of interesting in terms of art, this sort of dynamic that we have, is this this idea of parenting, that you you come to a point in your life where you have sort of thought that your parents were not human in some way, and then you, part of part of growing up, is this realisation that your parents are human and they have their own history and their own story and that they did their best and this sort of dialectic that you can understand where your parents came from and still hold your own truth of your own experience of your childhood and that those two things, even though they seem kind of opposite in some ways, can completely be true at the same time. And I think that that can be a very sort of empowering moment when you, when you realise that and kind of can integrate that into yourself. Uh, I mean, obviously, it doesn't apply to us because obviously mum's perfect. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I, so that's the only other thing that, that really, uh, I sort of, stood, I mean, there was lots of other things that stood out to me, but that was the one that I wanted to mention. Yes, I mean, it's sort of interesting, isn't it, that... Um, you know, this is, a, this is an, almost an example of that here in the podcast, isn't it? It's making a transition between a new kind of level of relationship with your parent, right? Where you become adults mm. with a di- with that. She talked about having a hawk's eye view and, and also the kind of, and then there's the moments where you're the mother and the child again, even when you're adults. And mm. I find that I can I can move between the two. Thank you both so much for your wisdom and insight and ideas. We'll leave it there for this week's episode. But I would just like to say another big thank you to Minnie Driver for allowing us to use her story in order to help others deal with some of life's greatest challenges. See you all next week. <laughs>